Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. Did you know that 50% of people with PCOS will go on to develop prediabetes or diabetes by the age of 40? Insulin resistance, which I've talked about as a root cause of PCOS symptoms, leads to prediabetes and eventually type 2 diabetes if left unchecked. So I wanted to bring in a diabetes expert to talk about what you might want to consider when it comes to diabetes prevention and care. Kim Rose is a Florida-based registered dietitian nutritionist and certified diabetes care and education specialist who specializes in health and wellness concerns for persons with diabetes. Her inclusive approach and philosophy revolve around making nutrition easy and attainable. Kim does this by addressing common diabetes-related misconceptions and educating her clients why better blood sugar control is both realistic and attainable. I am so glad Kim agreed to come talk with me about these issues. Let's dive in. Welcome, Kim. I am so grateful to have you here. Why don't you start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Um, and also, what exactly is a certified diabetes care and education specialist? I'm still getting used to that new terminology too. Sure, sure. So uh, as you guys know, my name is Kim. I was originally born in Jamaica. So if you hear kind of like a slight accent, that's what you're hearing. I pronounce my A's and my E's differently. So you're hearing my Jamaican accent. I am uh, based in Florida and diabetes and type two diabetes specifically and pre-diabetes is like my thing. So living in Florida, I specifically live in South Central Florida. So South Central Florida is what I like to call a salad bowl. So not only are there Southerners, but there is like a large population of Caribbean folks and also like the indigenous nation. So I live about 45 minutes South of like a Seminole Indian reservation, which is like so cool. And I see a lot of people from the reservation that have uh, type two diabetes, that have prediabetes, and it's just, it's just so sad to say the least. 
So to give you a little bit of background about myself, um, why I started focusing on diabetes. So I thought for the longest that my niche was going to be clinical. Like I was going to be that ICU dietitian, you know, like the ones that you would read about and hear about in the news, but it really didn't take me long to realize that instead of seeing people at their worst, why not try to see them, you know, and make a difference in their lives while they still can. So simultaneously, a doctor in my community, he came to me and he was like, it was a gastroenterologist and he's still active in the community. And he was like, Kim, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people in my practice that have type two diabetes. What are you going to do about it? And I found that interesting because there at the time, there was only eight dietitians in my community. And like three of them were retiring, Melissa. So it was like really few and far between. And I was saying to myself, okay, what do you mean? What am I going to do about it? Like, you're the doctor. You have more pull than I do. So after really considering his statement and started seeing more and more people in the ICU that would come in with DKA and sepsis and have diabetes and all of these issues, I said to myself, you know what? Kim, you're not going to lose anything by simply taking up the book to start studying for your examination to become a certified diabetes care and education specialist. And that really just, you know, just reading that book opened up my eyes to so many things. So a certified diabetes care and education specialist is someone who is versed in treating and managing the different different types of diabetes as well as pre-diabetes. So I said to myself, you know what, let me just read, let me read for fun, and let me just go ahead and take the examination after studying for a year. Like what a nerd, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I took the examination and I passed and I said, you know what, I, I take this as a sign. Like if you know me in real life, I always say this has to be a sign. So I just took it as a sign to say, well, you know, Kim, the majority of people that you're seeing in the hospital setting have type two diabetes and there is, there seems to be a a great disproportion of who you're seeing with diabetes, especially the indigenous nation and the Caribbean nation, the Caribbean folks. So why not focus on type two diabetes as well as pre-diabetes? And ever since then, I have not looked back and I've enjoyed every moment since. That's great. You probably already had all the hours you needed working with that population to get the credential, right? Just from your day-to-day work. Yes, yes, for sure. So the requirements to become a certified diabetes care and education specialist, you have to be a dietitian for at least two years. And then after that, you have to do a certain number of CEUs, continuing education units. And then you also have to have a certain contact hours with the population that has prediabetes or any type of diabetes. So yeah, I had all the credentials. It was just a matter of when are you going to take the test, Kim? So yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it a little more in the episode, but you know, particularly when you were talking about you're seeing this disproportionate diagnosis and complications in people who are indigenous or Caribbean it really makes more sense that, you know, looking at the work you do and how you frame it, it's like, 
you know, you don't, you don't demonize cultural foods, you know, and say you can't have these with diabetes. You, you know, help people understand how to work them into their diets, like how to, how their own cultural foods are healthy. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's all important because I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I'm in a retirement community, but I'm, I hear that and I see that a lot. Like I have to contend with a lot of physicians that tell people, yeah, cut out bread and cut out potatoes and cut out this corn that you're eating. And I'm like, no, why? These foods are live. No, it's true. I did, I did a very short stint in a long-term care facility and, um, you know, people are set in their ways with what they want. And, you know, you got your, your older man eating his pot pie every single <laughs> night. You, they want the meatloaf that, you know, they want that traditional meat and potatoes that they grew up with. Right. Exactly. And that's what I hear a lot too, especially from the Florida natives that, you know, like hear people say, Hey, I'm a meat and potatoes kind of person. I'm not a quinoa. I'm not a (laughs) pseudo grain type of person. I'm like, I'm not going to take away your potatoes. That's not my job. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we, I probably, a lot of us have the experience of looking at a diet plan or, you know, something, some sort of cleanse to follow, you know, back in our youth when it's just filled with a list of foods that we've never even seen or heard of before. Um, and that's just, it's not in any way sustainable to try to eat like that. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I love that your mission is to make nutrition simple, inclusive, and attainable. Can you talk a little bit about each of those principles? Yeah, for sure. So as I alluded to earlier, there was so many people that I was meeting that said, oh, you know, my doctor told me or my nurse or my friend, sister who has a dog with diabetes, they told me that I can't eat rice and I can't eat bread and potato and like all my cultural staples. And they will start labeling like food as bad. And I'm like, there's, that's not true. And then so Instead, they would tell me that they ate like a piece of like bland chicken breast, cabbage and cauliflower rice. Like how interesting is that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's all white foods. And I'm just like, okay, that's not interesting at all. So instead, what I would do to make nutrition simple, I would educate them and I would say, you know, it doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be complicated just because something may have carbohydrates in it does not mean that it's a bad food. And, you know, once they found this out, then they would tell me, well, you know what, this is going to be something that's more attainable for me because I've tried uh, XYZ diet. I've tried to cut out all carbs, but it's not something that is attainable. So honestly, like all of this set me out on a mission to really dispel food and nutrition related myths, and also let people see that they can enjoy foods that they like in the proper portion sizes, even with chronic conditions. Like you don't have to eat the same thing day in and day out, and you can definitely live tasty and happy and healthy lives while enjoying your foods, the foods that you like. So when I say that I try to make nutrition simple, 
I think a lot of people, thanks to social media, make it so complex. And they think like, you know, what can I eat on a diabetes diet, which there's no such thing as a diabetes diet. Like it, it just does not exist. So I just like to break down foods. Like this is a carb, this is a fat, this is a protein, and this is what it does inside of your body, as well as make it attainable. I realized too, especially just the encounters that I've had with the indigenous population, you know, they're being told that their corn isn't good. And I'm just like, what's like, you guys grow this stuff. Like, why not utilize the foods that you guys already have on hand and learn how to eat them in the proper portion sizes to control your blood sugar levels. So that's where this, uh, the simple and the attainable part comes in and also being inclusive. Like there's no food reign supreme over the next. So I try to teach people how to include everything that they like into their preferred diet or way of eating. Yeah, that's very similar to the approach I use too. It's not about cutting any foods out. You might be you know, because uh, insulin resistance and prediabetes are very common in PCOS. And so mm-hmm. eating in a, a blood sugar balancing way is important. You know, so it's not a matter of cutting those foods out, though. It might be a matter of shifting proportions a little bit mm-hmm. in order to not spike your blood sugar out of control. All those foods can be represented there, all your faves. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it was so sad. I had one guy come to me and he said that, like, do you mean to tell me that I can't eat a piece of cake for my daughter's third birthday? And I'm like, I never said that. (laughs) Like, who told you this misinformation? So it's really about, you know, as you said, enjoying the foods that you like, but really in the proper portion size. Yeah, I think that's why I love your content so much because you, like me, (laughs) really try Mm -hmm. to work hard to dispel those myths that are out there, you know, whether they're being spread by people without nutrition education (laughs) or people who maybe think that they're nutrition experts, Mm -hmm. but it's actually doing a lot of harm out there um, in the community. Yeah. And don't even get me started, Melissa, on the people who think that they're nutrition experts and are really not. These people are like the bane of my existence because they just go around and confuse people. And then people think that their nutrition goals are not attainable. And I, and then you see their diabetes get worse. You see their blood sugar skyrocketing and they have complications from it. So I think something that all the listeners need to realize is definitely seek a food and nutrition expert that is a registered dietitian nutritionist, not just someone that's a health coach or went online and did a two-hour course and got some type of certificate, but a registered dietitian. Yeah, diabetes um, and prediabetes and, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome are all actual medical diagnoses. So if you have someone trying to advise you on how to treat those conditions using food or supplements or otherwise, technically that's considered medical nutrition therapy. And that is exclusively the domain of registered dietitians who are trained in how to do that. I mean, a lot of these you know, self-proclaimed coaches out there 
they're not doing things like checking what medications people are on and what interactions there might be. And, you know, just the depth of knowledge that we have and, you know, interpreting labs and seeing, oh, this person's liver enzymes are high. They might not be a good candidate for berberine, for example, or, you know, we just know all that stuff. Whereas, you know, other other people really don't. And it's it's dangerous to work with an unlicensed professional. 100. I 100% agree with that. It's scary. It's scary. It really, really is. You know, I don't need to tell you that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how someone might find out whether they have prediabetes or diabetes? Sure. So I think, as you just mentioned, not I think, but for sure, prediabetes and diabetes are both conditions that are diagnosed by a healthcare provider. So just because you may have a glucometer and you take your blood sugar and your blood sugar may say a certain reading and you go on Dr. Google and Dr. Google says, well, this reading is considered X, Y, Z. That does not mean that you have the condition. A doctor has to diagnose that condition in order for you to have prediabetes or type two diabetes specifically. So there are a few tests that can be done, but the two most popular tests that I have seen, they're like the quick and easy tests is the fasting plasma glucose test and also the A1C test. So for the fasting plasma glucose test, this test, this test really tests your blood after you have fasted for a period of time, which is typically eight hours and you have had nothing to eat or drink with the exception of water. The A1C test, which is also called the hemoglobin A1C test, um, it provides you your average blood sugar level over a period of two to three months. So the way that this test is done, it takes into consideration that your red blood cells, which hold on to glucose, they live for approximately 120 days. So it's really testing how much sugar your red blood cells are holding on to. So your doctor, based on the numbers that you get, your doctor may give you a diagnosis of prediabetes or type two diabetes if you do have that condition. So I have seen a few doctors, there are certain standards that, or parameters, there's certain numbers that the doctors want you to fall under. So for the fasting plasma glucose test, um, if you have a number between 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter, then they may diagnose you as prediabetes. Or if your A1C is between 5.7 and 6.4, then they may diagnose you as having prediabetes. And the reason why I'm saying may is because I have seen doctors put out diagnoses which do not meet this criteria. And there's a method to their madness. I don't know what's really working on working in their brain. So again, that's why I say it's important that your healthcare provider give you a diagnosis. For type two diabetes, uh, the diagnosis is a little different. The numbers uh, tend to be a little higher. So where the fasting plasma glucose test for someone that had prediabetes is 100 to 125, for type 2 diabetes, it's a number of 126 
uh, milligrams per deciliter or higher on two separate tests. And for the A1C, where the um, pre-diabetes diagnosis range was between 5.7 to 6.4, for type 2 diabetes, it's a number of 6.5% or higher on two separate tests. So that's how, in a nutshell, they um, give out that diagnosis. But again, each physician does things a little differently. If it's a family care um, practitioner versus an endocrinologist, they may do a little, um, do things differently depending on what lab tests they want to use and what's their parameters. Yeah, I think it's funny how you said uh, we really, we, we also can't read the minds of the doctors. We don't know why <laughs> they do what they do sometimes. And, you know, that's one thing that's outside the scope of a dietitian is to diagnose. Um, yeah. I actually was just talking to a friend of mine who's also a dietitian, and she had a woman who had, her doctor had diagnosed her with gestational diabetes based on a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test, like just the insulin was high. But mm. but A1C was like 4.7. I mean, it was like beautiful. Wow. Her fasting glucose <laughs> was like, you know, low 80s. I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know why you did it either. <laughs> like, right. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I have I have seen some things in my day and I have seen doctors put out diagnoses and I'm like, well, uh, I'm not going to question it, but okay, I'm doing, going with, I'm, that's not my scope. So let me, let's talk about food and nutrition. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was going to say, have you ever had the opposite? Cause I've definitely had that situation where, you know, someone is sharing their labs with me that they, you know, just had run and their A1C is like in the sevens. And I'm like, okay, so did, did your doctor happen to mention anything about this test result? And they're like, no, they didn't say anything. They just said, looks good, looks good. And I'm like, okay, well, um, I can't tell you, but why don't we start talking about a blood sugar balancing diet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had that as well. I've had that. Uh, recently, my husband, I have, because he has diabetes that runs in his family, and I, every time he goes and gets his yearly annual, I'm like, okay, this, these are the labs that I need you to ask. So his, I realized his A1C was just like creeping up gradually and it creeped up to the point where it was in the pre-diabetes range. And my husband is an ER nurse. So I'm like, oh, what did your doctor say to you? And then he was like, oh, my doctor didn't say anything. And so I told my husband, well, according to your uh, test results, your A1C falls within the range of someone that has prediabetes. And he was like, well, you're a dietitian. You can't diagnose. And I'm like, touche, touche. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's absolutely right. But I would definitely still like for you to ask your doctor what's going on. So after he went back to the doctor and the doctor was like, yeah, we need to really monitor your A1C. So, you know, I definitely started my whole regimen with him and it went back down into the normal range. So like, I definitely do see doctors, long story short, that just allow it to creep up. And that's not to say I'm bashing physicians. I know they have so much going on um, in their world and now in the area that we're living in with, you know, I don't want to say it, but this virus, there's a lot going on that 
they really don't have time to pay attention to. Oh, yeah. I, I actually, I've been sitting on some lab tests that I'm supposed to have checked up on for like six months now because <laughs> it's like, I don't want to go to a walk-in clinic right now to yeah. get a lab test, you know? Um, yeah, it makes it difficult for that routine care um, with everything mm -hmm. being so, you know, backed up <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I know you talk about this a lot you know, the whole misconception that you have to give up carbs or eliminate carbs if you have diabetes. So, you know, can you explain why you really don't have to give up carbs or sugar? Yeah. So I think we can all agree that social media has done a great job, like kudos to them, hats off to them at vilifying carbs. They have. <laughs> and <laughs> I like to tell people that carbs are not the enemy because they do so many wonderful things for the body. So even if a person does have diabetes, foods that contain carbs, such as fruits and starchy vegetables like corn and potato and your beans and your legumes and your dairy products, your nuts and even your sweet treats, like all these foods collectively provide the body with a source of energy. They give vitamins and minerals, which our bodies need for growth and repair and maintenance. And I like to tell people like, for instance, dairy products, let's look at milk, right? It contains calcium. It contains phosphorus, which is important for like bone health. Fruits, fruits have a variety of vitamins and minerals, which can prevent what I like to call hidden hunger, which is like a micronutrient deficiency that results from a lack of vitamins and minerals. So I don't believe in cutting out major food groups. And I always talk about keto because it seems like a lot of people that have prediabetes or type two diabetes, they turn to keto and the type of keto that they turn to is really their steak and cheese kind of keto diet. So your brain prefers carbohydrates as a source of energy. Your muscles prefers carbs as a source of energy. So really when individuals tell you to cut out carbs, or if you believe you have to cut out carbs, that is not accurate. That is not scientifically sound. Your body needs carbohydrates in certain proportions to function normally. Yeah, I think, you know, there's not a lot of room for nuance on social media to begin with. It's just, you know, hard to tell the full story in such a short caption, you know, and I, I think there's also a lot of good research on specific types of carbs and their benefits, you know, especially fruit. There's a bunch of research studies on fruit showing it actually lowers the risk of diabetes. Yeah. You know, and then um, legumes, again, legumes have that soluble fiber that helps lower your blood sugar. And it's just, you know, to cut them out with no real rationale medically or nutritionally is just makes no sense. You know, it doesn't really have to be all or nothing either. I think, you know, oftentimes I'll be working with someone who's following, you know, sort of way of eating that they learned from social media. And it turns out that they have insomnia, they're anxious all the time, they have low energy, you know, and 
maybe they went too low carb for them. Your brain needs carbs, your adrenals love carbs, you know? So I think sometimes, you know, that, that message has come through loud and clear that carbs are the problem, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, as you said, the body loves carbs and, you know, for someone to say that they're going to go and follow their friend's diet or follow this influencer or this celebrity, you know, at times they can put themselves at risk for more harm than help. Um, And there are real harms with going too low carb. Um, Can you talk about some, some of the risks of eating too low carb? Yeah. So the first thing that pops in my mind, um, so let's, let's define what low carb is. So I know that there's really no strict definition, but really anything a hundred to let's say about 150 grams per day is considered to be low carb. And when you look at this in comparison to what the brain needs, the brain needs about 130 grams of carbohydrates per day to function normally. So a few things initially come to my mind, which is fiber. Fiber is so important. Oh my gosh, fiber is my BFF. Fiber is important for many reasons. Like it helps to keep you full, helps with your satiety, and it also helps to maintain bowel health. So especially when it comes to bowel health, you really risk constipation. So fiber allows things to get moving in your GI tract so that you can eliminate your bowels because constipation is an unpleasant thing. I have seen numerous people come to the hospital, come to the emergency room simply because they cannot move their bowels. So this may be something that, um, you know, people may be saying, well, you know, constipation is not that bad, but when you actually have to get hospitalized for constipation, it is not a pleasant thing. Another thing is fiber, especially the fiber that's found in fruits and vegetables and legumes and grains. They contain antioxidants, they contain vitamin C, they contain potassium. So if you're cutting out these uh, fiber-rich foods from your diet, you're really doing yourself a disservice. You're cutting out a whole variety of phytonutrients, which your body needs to fight against free radicals. So those are immediately the first two things that come to my mind when I think of low carb diet, why it's not ideal and why fiber reigns supreme and why uh, the phytochemicals are so important for us. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add to that that I've seen relatively often is triggering a gallbladder attack. Yeah, I've I've seen that happen and I've I've known people who have had to have their gallbladders out um and they never had problems before going on a keto diet. Wow, wow. And that makes sense. That totally makes sense because even too all of the research that I'm coming across when it speaks about low carb diet uh or even keto diet is like, what does this do to heart health? You know, cholesterol levels are sky high. LDL levels are sky high. And individuals that have diabetes are at risk already for developing heart-related issues simply because they have diabetes. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the fruits and the vegetables, they just have this protective benefit 
over the body. And they also help to reduce the risk, as you said, of developing uh, type two diabetes. So, I mean, it's, it's a real and present danger. It is. Yeah. And I think, you know, the mainstream media will take a published article and spin it as like low carb diet has success and blah, blah, blah. But when you're actually looking at the study and you're looking at how low carb is defined in research studies, it's actually 40%, less than 40% of calories coming from carbs. So, you know, if you're looking at someone on a 2000 calorie a day diet and they're eating 40% carbs, that's less than 200 grams a day, you know, and that's certainly lower than the standard American diet, but I don't think it's what most people think when they think of a low carb diet. They're, you know, really striving for that under 50 grams or, you know, and it's, it's, you don't, you just don't have to go that low to get the benefits. Correct. Correct. I totally agree. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, as you said, people don't get the full story. They get the little chunks and the little bits that they see on social media, not realizing, well, uh, the way that this media outlet is spinning the story, it's only half of the story. Uh, you really don't have to do 50 grams or less. Like I've, I've seen individuals and I even uh, had a conversation with a close friend of mine that I've known since like we were 12 and she was on the keto diet. But at the same time, like, okay, you're drinking daiquiris and you're <laughs> eating steak and shrimp all the time. Like, what is what does your cholesterol look like with your triglycerides? So I mean, it's, 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 it's a shame. It's a crying shame. It is. But you know, one good thing that I have noticed though, Melissa, it kind of seemed like for the past two years, since, you know, everyone has been on lockdown, that people are taking a renewed interest in their health and they're not just, you know, taking things as is, but, you know, they're researching, even though they're doing like, Google research, I, I still find a lot more people are coming to me and saying, well, I need help with this because there's so much conflicting information that I'm finding that I'm confused and I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. So I would say in the last two years, a renewed interest in personal health has really peaked. Yeah. And that's a great time to reach out to a professional when, you know, cause we're all capable. We all know our body is better than anyone else. We know what's going to work for us and what doesn't. But once you've kind of done some of that surface research for yourself and you're actually more confused than you were when you had the question <laughs> originally, like that's the time to reach out to a dietitian who can help you know, untangle you from all right. of those, you know, misconceptions out there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cause I mean, the internet is just, it's a rabbit hole. You'll find oh, one yeah. thing and it'll lead you to the next, the next thing, you know, four hours later, I'm still sitting here. Oh, that's me. That's me on PubMed for sure. It's like, <laughs> you know, cause they put on the side, they're like, if, you know, if you like this article, click this one yeah. or, or, or these articles also cite this article. Do you want to look at this? And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, 12, 12 articles deep. And I'm like, wait, what, what did I come here to find? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey there. Quick question for you. Do you have questions about which lab tests you need for PCOS? There are lab tests you need to be diagnosed with PCOS, 
lab tests to help determine which of the root causes are driving your symptoms, and labs you should have done regularly to monitor your progress. Then there are specialized labs like functional hormone tests, gut tests, fertility tests, and more. Raise your hand if you are confused. Let's just say I get a ton of questions about labs. So I've put together a new live workshop to talk about just that topic and answer your questions live. Join me on Tuesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern time for Can't Guess, Gotta Test, the No BS Guide to PCOS Lab Tests a 90-minute training on the labs I recommend for PCOS to help you identify and address the root causes of your unique symptoms. There are also two great bonuses with this workshop. The first is a downloadable list of the lab tests I recommend for easy reference when you're talking to your doc. And the second is the lab tracking worksheet I use with my clients so you can track your progress over time go to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS labs to sign up now. If you can't make the training live, it will be recorded, but of course you wanna join live so you can make sure to get your questions answered. Spaces are limited, so go to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS labs now. Can't wait to hang out with you on March 8th. All right, back to the episode. you know, cutting carbs is, is not the answer. Um, so Mm -hmm. what types of nutrition strategies do you recommend instead when someone, you know, maybe they have prediabetes and they're concerned about it progressing Mm -hmm. to diabetes? So the nutrition strategy that I love because it is quick, it is easy, it's digestible and people get it and can also include the cultural foods that they like. Um, is the healthy plate method. I know, I know healthy plate method has its drawbacks, but I really love the healthy plate method. Um, so in essence, what the healthy plate method is, is one half of your plate is vegetables. And it really doesn't matter if these are raw vegetables, if they're cooked, if they're canned, if they're frozen, if they are grilled veggies. So it really focuses on the majority of your consumption to be some form of vegetable. One fourth of your plate is your protein, which is specifically a lean protein. And then the other one fourth of your plate is carbs. So this can include um, more of the traditional carbs that we see at the grocery stores or even your cultural favorites. If that is a tamale or if it's roasted corn or for a lot of the Caribbean individuals that I see, if it's any type of uh, ground food, such as potatoes and yams and bananas, bold bananas, bold green bananas, then it allows room for that as well. So I'm really a fan of the healthy plate method. And I like to individualize the healthy plate method because even though one fourth of the plate may be allotted for your car portion, there's individuals that lead a little more active lifestyle, Um, that need a little more carbohydrates for their blood sugar goals. So I can easily tell them to double up if need be. So I'm a fan of the healthy plate method. One of the sort of controversies about the plate method is that it's not very cultural, you know, diet Mm -hmm. 
friendly. Um, how are you using it when you're talking about things like a traditional mixed stew or something like that? Are you having them, you know, do mm-hmm. sort of proportions and ratios of ingredients? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I actually have them do portions after everything is cooked. So let me say this. A lot of the individuals that I meet with, especially from the Caribbean nation or people's folks, as I should say, there is a huge problem with the overconsumption of carbohydrates because myself, as I mentioned, I'm originally from Jamaica. We eat a lot of starchy foods. Like we eat in one meal, we'll have potato with boiled green banana, we'll have plantains, we'll have rice and peas, then we'll have some beans on the side. And this is like 75% of the plate. So instead, what I do, I would say, okay, let's cut our portions a little bit based on your specific blood sugar readings. So if they do something like a stew, then I will tell them the specific portion size of the stew to include on their plate. Um, So that's how I get around it. So what I actually have in my practice for individuals, depending on where they're from, I actually individualize the healthy plate method. So I would create a handout for them and let them know based on what you have told me that you like to eat from your culture, this is where it goes on the specific plate. So that's how I do my get around. I just don't focus on, oh, well, here's the lettuce because I'll tell you this, Jamaicans, where we really don't eat salads like that. You know, we'll eat uh, sauteed spinach. We like our vegetables cooked. So I really individualize it depending on who I'm working with. Now, that's a great way to go about it is, you know, you have you get what they're eating from them and then help them to categorize those foods in their heads so they know how to apply the plate method to what they're eating. That makes total sense. Yeah. Because also too, I realize people don't realize, okay, what category of food am I eating? Is it this a carb, a fat or protein? More often than not, people understand what a protein is, but they really don't understand what is a carb? What's the function of a carb? What is a fat? What's the function of a fat? Um, Specifically in the islands, we eat a lot of avocados. We eat a lot of uh, something that's called ackee which can impact, um, Aki specifically impacts cholesterol numbers. So even the other day, um, someone came to me and he was like, Kim, you know, the doctor said that my cholesterol is high. What, what can I do? Then I said, well, what are you eating? And he was like, well, I'm eating Aki every single day. And I'm like, that's the reason why your cholesterol is so elevated. And he was like, well, Aki's a fruit. It's, it's a fruit that we cook up in a very savory manner. And I'm like, yeah, it's a fruit, but it's a waxy fruit. And he was like, oh, okay, I get it. So I have to think of Aki not as a fruit, but as a fat. And I said, exactly. Mm, I remember my very first time doing a hospital rotation. And it was the very first time that, that my preceptor took me into a room with a patient. And I, you know, he was there for a diabetes exacerbation. I don't remember if he was in DKA or not, but his numbers were just off the charts. And he, you know, when he was talking to the dietitian, he was saying, well, I've been so good. I don't eat candy at all. Um, I, you know, I'm not eating sugar at all. 
And so when she started asking him, well, what, what are you eating? And he said, well, my wife makes me mac and cheese every day. <laughs> and for snacks, I'll have chips, you know, I'll have a, a bag of chips. And so he really didn't understand that it wasn't just about sweet things or sugar. Mm -hmm that it's, you know, that total carbs make a difference too. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I feel him, I mean, mac and cheese is, you know, everyone loves mac and cheese. <laughs> right. But, but it was, you know, he didn't realize that was something he needed to be mindful of. And that just always stuck with me. Do you think that there are some other common misconceptions like that about eating for diabetes? Like, you know, we talked about fruit, kind of talked about keto, um, you know, not accounting for for total carbs. As long as you avoid sugar and soda, you're fine, that kind of thing. What are some of the ones you like to bust most, most often? Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that I really like to, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said a lot of people look at sugars and not carbs, because I get a lot of people coming to me and they say, well, you know, this only has X, X amount of grams of sugar. And I'm like, well, that doesn't tell you the full story. So I definitely think that's one. And the other one is portion size. And I think portion is everything. And overeating is just so common because we live in like a super sized culture. So as a result, like the total number of carbohydrates can easily add up for an individual. And as I like to tell people, you know, don't practice mindless eating, you know, eating in front of the television and grazing and not paying attention to, well, how much am I actually consuming? So I always tell people, and this is why every week on my Instagram story, I'm always saying eat more produce, eat more produce. Um, so especially like the non-starchy veggies, such as, you know, tomatoes and lettuce and um, cucumbers and zucchini. I don't care if it's raw or if it's cooked, if it's canned, if it's fresh or if it's frozen, a veggie is a veggie. Um, and I even see people in my comment section saying, oh, my gosh, you're promoting canned foods. And I'm like, well, I don't know the budget of the average American. I, I don't know you. I don't know what's in your wallet. We're living under hard times. So definitely eating a veggie from a can is better than eating no veggies, in my opinion. So I like to tell people to definitely watch their portion sizes and don't get their information from a celeb or from a health coach or from someone that is on social media and is saying all these things that are confusing you. Seek out information from someone that is registered and credentialed and especially like a dietitian that is in the specific niche that you want to focus on. Because for instance, like I know nothing about PCOS, Melissa. So every person <laughs> that comes to me and they tell me that they have prediabetes and PCOS, I know there's a whole slew of things going on behind the backgrounds with their hormones that it's going to impact their blood sugar numbers. So I always refer them out and I'm like, Hey, take a look at Melissa because sometimes it's, it's an underlying issue. It's not just, oh, I have prediabetes, so let me handle this. There's a whole slew of other hormonal things that need to be addressed in order for your blood sugars to properly uh, be within the normal range. So just don't choose any dietitian. Choose a dietitian who 
is in that specific field because all dietitians have their specific focus. Absolutely. I think it's important um, when you're talking about looking at, you know, if you're eating something that has a label, looking at the label for what is the serving size, you know, because mm-hmm. you can get a pretty small frozen pizza. And if you look closely at it, one third of the pizza is a serving size. And so, you know, oftentimes, and I'm talking like, you know, the healthier frozen pizza, yeah. you know, multiply that by three and you're looking at 150 grams of carbs in one meal. Um, wow. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, you really do kind of have to be mindful for that, about that. And I think another really sneaky thing, and I think it's sneaky in the world of food bloggers, but also sneaky on labels and packages of things where it mm-hmm. says no added sugar. Yeah. You know, you look at, okay, these, you know, food bloggers recipes that are being made with dates instead of sugar. And it's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Dates. Dates have a little bit of minerals. They have a little bit of fiber. They're not pure sugar, but the total recipe still has 50 grams of sugar. Okay, well, <laughs> that's not going to work. Or those um, those like fruit smoothies you can buy at the mm-hmm. grocery store in the in the produce section. Those like packaged ones. Same thing there. They say no added sugar right on the front, and you look at it, and it's like 38 grams of sugar. Um, I know. You know, so deceptive without the fiber to, to balance it out and slow it down. And, you know, you might as well just eat ice cream than try to eat something <laughs> that you, you think is healthy. But, you know, I'd rather have the ice cream than, you know, a sad smooth grocery store smoothie. <laughs> I know that that is so true. Yeah, I think label reading and I think dietitians, oh, I think maybe we can definitely help the general public more with that. And that's why it's important for individuals to work with dietitians because things on the food labels, like who, who really has time to sit there in the grocery store, stand up and analyze every single thing, you know, like you'll be in the grocery store for hours doing that. So just understanding what specifically you should be looking for in a label is important. And and you're right, the 38 grams of sugar for like a half a cup of mm-hmm. whatever type of smoothie concoction the grocery store has is really deceptive, extremely deceptive. Oh, right. I totally forgot even that those 16 ounce little containers are, are two servings. So again, take, yeah. that, take that 38 and multiply it by two. Yeah, it yeah. really adds up. And I think yeah, being able to effectively scan a grocery label is something that's important. I know that's one of the things that you teach in your programs as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And I've even had people tell me like, oh, you know, I bought this bread and the bread, the packaging is brown, like it looks good. So I'm like, okay, yeah, let's let's look at the nutrition facts label. How many grams of fiber? One, one gram of fiber. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like, did you see this? So <laughs> definitely. That is something that I really try to teach because I think of bread as a staple in every single household. So if you are unable to understand what is considered to be a high fiber bread, what the first few ingredients should say on your bread, then I mean, it's, it's a win-lose situation. So, you know, definitely when too many people came to me and they said, oh, you know, I bought this bread. It looks good. It said, uh, low carb and low calorie, but it only has one gram of fiber. Like that bread sucks. 
for lack of better words. On the other hand, there are people who think they're buying something healthy when they're buying those low carb breads or low carb tortillas and, you know, yeah. they buy it and they, they incorporate it and they think that means, okay, I can eat this like mm-hmm. totally free food. And then they end up being, you know, glued to their toilet for the next two days. Yeah. Um, you know, and you look at the ingredients and it's all fiber. It's, you know, exorbitant amounts of fiber. It's inulin and chicory, which mm-hmm. are fermentable carbohydrates and it's sugar alcohols. And it's just like, well, this is your problem, you know, or those fake candies, those ones. Um, yeah. What are the sweet whatevers that are like all fiber and sugar alcohols? <laughs> like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's there's a balance there that needs to definitely take place in regards to label reading. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, okay, you can eat those, but you might, you know, clear out <laughs> your colon, like basically. <laughs> That is so true. I remember when I was in my rotation, it was actually a renal rotation and the dietitian was like, Hey, I have these, it was some type of, I can't even remember, but it was some type of dessert, like a cookie, but she was like, Oh, these are like new high fiber cookies. And they had inulin in there as well as all these sugar alcohols. And she was like, be careful, Kim, don't eat too much. (laughs) And of course, as a starving intern, I'm like free food. Of course, why not? Oh, Melissa, let me tell you, for the next 24 hours, my stomach was doing somersaults. So never again. I definitely (laughs) learned the hard way. Like, you know, but like, I definitely get it for interns. Like, it's free food. You're a starving student. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, my my food service rotation was not fun for a lot of reasons, (laughs) but our dining hall was so good. And, you know, it was like, okay, now I'm going to get free breakfast and free lunch (laughs) here today. And like, I would eat, you know, real meals. I mean, you'd see the Uh college kids like eating cereal or whatever. And I'm like, I'll have the salmon and the green beans. (laughs) (laughs) I, I definitely ate well while I was there for sure. Nice. What about some of the things uh, beyond nutrition that you work on? Are there lifestyle changes that you talk about or that can make a difference? Yeah. So there are really three major lifestyle changes that I speak about a lot. The first being stress. uh, The second being sleep. Sleep is a beautiful thing. And also, I don't like to call it exercise. I like to call it joyful movement. I find that people are a little more receptive to joyful movement over the term exercise. Exercise just seems like it's like another chore, something that has to be done. So um, let's first start off with stress. So when someone is stressed, um, then this can really increase cortisol in the body. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, the normal stress that we face day to day. I'm speaking about that persistent, unnecessary type of stress that you're not creating because you don't have any type of boundaries. So when someone is under constant levels of stress, that this really puts them at risk for consistently elevated blood sugar levels, which can impact every single part of the body. And for someone that has prediabetes, this can definitely be the tipping scale to entering type 2 diabetes Or if someone has type 2 diabetes already, this is an ideal because then it can cause complications to arise. So what I like to tell people is, you know, 
try to get your stress under control. And one thing that I've noticed as a dietitian is individuals that I see in my practice who actually go to a mental health counselor, a mental health professional are able to better handle their stress in their lives. They're able to identify what's their triggers. They're able to cope better and they're able to just handle it all together. So I think stress management is very important. There can be a stigma about going to a mental health professional. Um, You know, I think we're getting better about talking about that and normalizing that. But, you know, for a long time, I think people really think they should only consider that if they're in crisis. And, you know, much like seeing a dietitian to help prevent a condition from worsening, you know, mental health counselor can do the same thing. And, you know, like you said, help you identify those triggers and build up a toolbox of coping mechanisms that don't include food. So I'm totally 100% on board with you for that one. Yeah. And you're right. Mental health for a long time has just been this stigma. But I think now, you know, we're, we're trying to break through that, these labels and, you know, allow people to get the help that they need. So Stress management is all important. The second thing is sleep deprivation. And I'm here speaking from experience. So sleep deprivation can have some serious side effects on blood sugar management. So when you are sleep deprived, this is associated with um, lower glucose tolerance, poor insulin sensitivity. And it can throw your hormones off, which really govern like your appetite. So case in point, I was recently working with someone and she had prediabetes and we were working on getting her fasting morning blood sugars down. So, you know, she said something to me. She was like, Kim, you know, I have a confession. I'm not sleeping well at night. And I'm like, well, you know, why aren't you sleeping well at night? And she was like, well, you know, I'm going through um, menopause. And I'm like, okay, menopause. These are some things that you can do. You know, I implemented an individualized uh, program for her and she wasn't waking up with all of these night sweats. And, you know, when you go through menopause, uh, you're just hot. You're just hot at night. You're tossing, you're turning. And when she started getting adequate rest, That's when her blood sugar levels were, it dropped from like 145 in the morning, then to 120, then to 112, and then to 105. And then she even got it one day to, you know, 98, 97. I'm like, you go. So, you know, definitely sleep deprivation can do a toll on your blood sugar numbers. Yeah. And also those, those night sweats or hot flashes cortisol, when cortisol goes up, estrogen goes down. So anytime you're stressed, it triggers a hot flash or a night sweat. And, you know, lack of sleep or poor sleep is a a trigger, a stressful trigger to the body. So, you know, really Mm -hmm. interesting that that all, you know, it's all connected. (laughs) It is. It is. And then like the final thing is, Joyful movement. I was about to say exercise, but (laughs) joyful movement. Um, I like to tell people, especially aerobic exercise, you know, walking, simply walking, 
can decrease the blood sugar levels and also improve insulin sensitivity. So I like to tell people, I'm not expecting you to run a marathon or do the Tour de France. Just simply get outside, get some fresh air, get some sun, go for a walk. Or if you don't want to go outside, when you're cleaning your house, you know, turn on the music and dance while you're cleaning. You know, that's a form of aerobic activity. So definitely aerobic exercise can decrease your blood sugar levels as well, or aerobic joyful movement, as I like to call it. Uh, You weren't there at the conference that I went to in Arizona, but there was an 80s dance party on the last night. And (laughs) it was like the most fun that I have had in a long time. We were just busting those 80s moves out on the dance floor. (laughs) And I was sweating. And yeah, my Fitbit showed like 20,000 steps the next day. Wow. I know you're a fan too um, of gardening and growing some Mm -hmm. of your own food. And I think people don't realize that that also counts as joyful movement. I've been sore some days after working in the yard. Yeah, it's, it's gardening is hard work. Like, you know, like all my neighbors around me there, I, I'm in a retired community in Florida. So like all my neighbors are retired and I saw them like gardening with their flowers and all of this stuff. So I said, Hey, you know, let me start gardening too. Let me join in on the fun. And I really have a new appreciation for these 70 and 80 year olds because (laughs) my back, my back the next day is so sore. Like, I don't know how they do it all the time. So definitely it's, it's a workout and it's a workout that yields a reward at the end. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even just part of my morning routine now when it's nice out is I'll, I'll have my coffee and then I'll go out and I'll, I'll check on all my plants. Um, and I'm just, you know, meandering through the garden, but it's a little bit of, outdoor movement first thing in the morning. I mean, in the beginning, it was mostly because I wanted to make sure the stupid raccoons didn't rip up <laughs> my tomatoes again. But, you know, I it, I really got into that routine as a nice way to just, let me just check on my gardens, you know? Right, right. You know what my dad does? I went to his house two days ago and it was like maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, Melissa. And like the raccoons are like right there. And I I was just so surprised because I'm like, aren't these nocturnal creatures? I could be wrong. (laughs) But I realized in order for the raccoons to stay out of my dad's garden, he actually feeds them cat food. And it works for him. It works. It absolutely works for him. So they're not like digging up anything. And I'm like, well, I I couldn't do that because I just don't like trash cats. But he was like, they're going to come anyway, Kim. And I'm like, you have a point. You do. Yeah, it's true. I put a, f- a bowl of food out there for, um, not for the raccoons. I actually, I don't think they've been the ones who've been eating it because I think they would make more of a mess if it were them. Um, but uh-huh. we do have a couple of yard cats who who come through and I try to distract them from the birds uh, that they want to be eating in my garden. I'm like, mm. if I put some, uh, some cat food out there for them, they won't eat the birds. <laughs> <laughs> true. So what do you think? I've, I've definitely been getting a lot of questions around this, and I also had the opportunity to test this out. But what do you think, you know, 
as a certified diabetes education and care specialist, what do you think about this trend of healthy people with no issues wearing continuous glucose monitors? Is it like any valuable info or do you think it's just like a fad? Well, I think it can provide valuable information to see how you respond to different foods. I think um, it can give you digestible information from that perspective. I think even more than healthy people, or let me just, let me not say healthy people, people that actually have a diagnosis of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, I think wearing a CGM is gold. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, CGMs, to me, they are like the big dogs, you know? They're expensive. Insurance won't pay for them unless you have this and this and this qualifying life experience. And even though your A1C may be, you know, within a range where your doctor wants you to be, wearing a CGM can allow you to see the different spikes. Like, okay, yeah, I ate this specific, I ate this meal. This meal had a little more fat. How is my body responding to it? Or I ate this meal that had a little more fiber. How is my body responding to it? So I think it gives you real-time insightful data so that you can make the modifications that you need in order to, quote-unquote, live a healthy, happy life. It's good information, but I think definitely people that have prediabetes and type 2, I think it's even better for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting experience and there were definitely some surprises for me, but in other ways it helped confirm things that I already knew. Like mm. if I'm going to eat some chocolate, the closer I eat it to a meal, the less mm -hmm. my blood sugar spikes, you know, to mm, actually right. see that it reflected in my pattern, you know, really, really helped. And it helped me to see some foods that maybe I had thought were easy, quick snacks for me, like a particular protein bar, just result in such a huge spike. And I was really, like, oh, wow. yeah, well, it's, you know, made with dates as the base. So it, gotcha. yeah, it was a crazy spike. So, you know, it's just helped me sort of think of, of things in that mindset. With a diagnosis of diabetes, the goal is really to keep your blood sugar in range as much as possible. So understanding what causes you to go out of range is really helpful. Right, exactly. And I, and I really think I was watching a, um, a presentation last week from a endocrinologist, and he was just speaking about the benefits of a C of using a CGM for individuals that have prediabetes and type two. And I was like, and he showed graphs of two specific individuals, and they had like an A one C of five point seven, and he was just showing them wearing a CGM, the different spikes that can occur, even though the average is an A1C of 5.7. He was like, well, really the A1C does not give you what's going on in the body. It gives you an average, but you can obviously see after this person ate this meal and the next person ate the exact same meal, the differences in blood sugar spikes. And I was just floored. Like it was a huge difference. So I think a CGM is great for individualized information. As you said, like that protein bar, who would have known it was going to shoot you up so high? So I, I, I hope it becomes available for 
you know, and more affordable for populations that have pre-D and type 2. Yeah, absolutely. Accessibility to information like that is is so important. And it's true. I mean, you and I could eat the same piece of bread and test our blood sugar and have a totally different response because we have different genetics, we have different gut microbiomes, we have, you know, different foods we've grown up eating and our bodies are used to or not used to. So um, I think, you know, I think it's it's in- interesting to understand that you can't look at someone else's graph and assume that that's the way that food is going to react in your body. Right. Before we wrap things up, what is one thing that you want people to take away from this episode? Well, I want people to take away, I want people to realize that whether you have prediabetes or type two diabetes, I want you to realize that it's, it's a complex condition. I want you to not allow this diagnosis to stress you out and focus on one thing at a time. I've seen so many people just come out of the gate running and sprinting, and then they get burned out like a month down the road because it's overwhelming. So I want you to focus on one thing at a time. And if there's one change that you can make today, eat more fruits and vegetables. That is the only thing I'm asking from you today. Just simply intentionally eat more fruits and vegetables with your meal. And don't allow prediabetes or type 2 diabetes management to define you because it can be overwhelming. Instead, reach out to a food and nutrition expert that is able to individualize care for you and help you manage your blood sugar levels. You know, I I do want you to tell people because you have such a great program called the Roadmap to Better blood sugar control. Can you talk a little bit about what that program is and who it might be right for and where to find out more information about that? Yeah. So I'm actually changing the name to the roadmap to better blood sugar management because Um, really, yeah, because really control, how can you control something um, that, you know, you, you can't expect your body to function normally if, you know, you don't have that whole entire control. So I I don't like that word control. I like management better. So I'm going to change it. So my roadmap to better blood sugar management is a five week self-study program that teaches you how you can start managing your blood sugar numbers. Like it really lays the foundation of things that you need to pay attention to related to your sleep, related to the foods that you're eating, related to stress management, related to joyful movement, and also what your blood sugar levels mean. So it really lays the foundation and it's created specifically for busy people that are like on the go, that have prediabetes or type two diabetes. And it doesn't matter if you just got a recent diagnosis or if you have been trying to manage your numbers for 10 or 20 years. The program really speaks to individuals that have gone through like a lot of fad diets and one specific area in the program speaks about the science behind 
why you need carbs, why you need fats, why you need protein and why yo-yo dieting and fat dieting is not it. So um, the program really dispels a lot of myths and it teaches you how to eat a balanced meal and live a lifestyle that is going to promote better blood sugar control. So the program is on my website, kimrosedietitian.com. And you can feel free to reach out when the program opens up in February of 2022. Awesome. I got to see the back end of the program a little bit when you were first putting it together. And it really is a fantastic and thorough program. Um, You know, and I think it it just has the potential to help so many people. So thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining me today. For those of you who are just tuning in, we've been speaking with Kimberly Rose, who is a diabetes expert and registered dietitian. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, stay balanced.